morning. So thankful to be here with you today. Uh, Blake and I were talking before the service this morning, and uh, we hope that this is not like a 10th anniversary hangover this morning, that, uh, that we are getting back to the grind of going through the Word of God and seeing what He has for us and, and just examining it as it, as it is. And uh, I hope that um, our energy is uh, not built on being, you know, the celebration we had last week, but it's built on Christ and the goodness of His gospel and how it changes us and makes us new and gives us the motivation to follow Him. It truly is, and, and Blake um, centered heavily on that as he does most weeks, but he centered heavily on the, necess- the necessity of Christ and everything that we do uh, uh, <clears throat> Excuse me, this morning. And it really is imperative in these things that we've been discussing over the last few weeks and this week that Christ is the center of our motivation in those things because otherwise we will not follow him in the way we should. Um, today we're going to be in... 1 Peter 3, we're going to start 1 Peter 3, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6, uh, and I've titled this sermon today, The Redeeming Quality of a Godly Wife, The Redeeming Quality of a Godly Wife, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, will you pray with me before we begin? God, we love you, you are good to us, uh, you ask us to do hard things uh, in difficult times in our lives, and we praise you for those difficulties because we know that it is impossible to grow like we should without challenge. The challenge is what makes us more like you. We also know that everything that we do that goes counter the culture, that goes counter to our nature, is honoring and glorifying to your name because the culture and our nature pulls us away from you, typically, and uh, you pull us back into um, fellowship with you. So help us, Lord, to do hard things, to trust you in those hard things, and um, to be changed by our willingness to be obedient to you first, and then those authorities that you have placed over us. Lord, teach us from your word today. Help us all to apply it so that we can become more like you, more like your son. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. During this entire section of 1 Peter, we've been discussing different opportunities And we'll call them opportunities because we want to look at it from a positive light, but different opportunities for Christians to submit to authority and honor the Lord. First, we discussed everyone's responsibilities to governing authorities. Remember, uh, Peter is writing this under the reign of Nero Caesar, who would later be responsible for murdering Peter. And Peter still says, submit to the king, submit to the emperor. Also, Peter was a witness to the, to the negative behavior of Pontius Pilate, who was the governor, uh, who Peter also says, submit to the king and submit to his governors. Pontius Pilate, of course, is the one who had the ultimate say in whether Jesus lived uh, or died. He had the final say in that. And so Peter is saying, submit to governing authorities in uh, even when it's difficult. The next opportunity for submission was in a boss and employee relationship. Even if the boss is a difficult boss, we are still called to submit to that authority. Obviously, in both situations, as long as that authority does not put a hindrance between us and our walk with the Lord, that is where the line of submission stops. 
We are to submit to unjust authority as unto the Lord. Two weeks ago, we saw the reason why. Because when Christ was treated unjustly, when, tri- when Christ was treated poorly, he did not revile back when he was reviled. He did not deceive back when deceit was spewed about him. He did not uh, even cast judgment. But when Christ was treated unjud- unjustly, instead of doing any of those things, he submitted to the will of the Father. Instead of saying, you know you're going to hell one day, folks, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know, what, they know not what they do. Christ set the example of, uh, in the ultimate form, in the way that he was treated, in the way that he was mistreated. He was perfect. He was holy. He was blameless. And yet he took on our sin. He who knew no sin was made to be sin. It didn't mean he sinned. It didn't mean he ever became unholy. He was still holy, blameless, and undefiled. But he took it on on our behalf. All of these things, not just primarily to honor and glorify the Lord, the Father, primarily for the salvation of the people, but also to leave us with an example to follow as it pertains to submitting to ungodly or uh, even authority that is unbecoming to us or for us. Now we come to another section where submission is likely going to be difficult. But just like our previous passage, our submission to the will of the Lord and to the authority over us is a key to honoring God and shining the light of Jesus to the world. So let's read 1 Peter 3, 1-6 and see the redeeming quality of a godly wife. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word... They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be hidden, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which which in God's sight is very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. I think to do this passage justice, it must be stated that this text is initially intended for a very specific audience. Uh, that is, so it's going to eliminate many of us today um, as far as its initial or into its uh, immediate context. That is wives who have unbelieving husbands. But I would, uh, I would say that it would be wise or unwise for us to think that the principles in this passage and in other similar passages don't apply. So we're going to discuss this just like we have in previous weeks about submission to God placed authority in our lives. The subject of wives submitting to husbands is a little more personal to a select few uh, in our congregation today. So uh, before we go on, we need to ask ourselves a few questions. Am I willing to do what God says even if it counters my intuitions and feelings? Am I willing to do what God says, even if it counters my intuitions and feelings? 
Do I obey God even when everything within me is saying otherwise? This is a decision that we all have to make because our nature was intended to love God. Our nature was intended to trust God, to walk in fellowship with him. Humans were placed in the garden on this earth to trust God, love God, and follow him. When sin entered in the world, all that changed. From the moment that sin entered the world, our hearts went from trusting God to doubting God, from obeying God to finding innovative ways to sneak around obedience, and from loving God to rejecting God. Because of this, we will be asked by God to do things that counter our very desires and nature. This is not how it was intended to be, though. We have talked about countless Examples of these requests, love those who hate you, return evil for good, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. The list goes on and today is no different. Today we will come to another one of those and it's gender specific, uh, but that is to submit to the spiritual authority of your husband and really what makes it, it's a double down, what makes it even more difficult is it's not just your husband, but also even if your husband is an unbelieving husband. Genesis 3.16 says that submission will be counter to what the wife's nature is. Although we were created to love God, to follow God, and to obey God, when sin entered into the world, our very natures changed. And this is the result. Genesis 3.16 says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you will bring forth children. That was not it, but here it is. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. One of the greatest and most foundational curses of the fall is this tension between wives and husbands over authority and submission. It is one of the most detrimental results of the fall of mankind. The husband and wife, because of the fall, will have this natural tendency. The husband will want to lord over the wife, will say, well, I am the husband, and that means submit. That is, by the way, we'll find out next week, that's not how it works. And the wife will say, uh, I am a wife, I am free, as they said in the 60s, I am woman, hear me roar, and I will not submit. You can't make me. It is because one of the most foundational curses of the fall is for there to be enmity, there to be this tension between a husband and wife and their roles they play in their life. So the first question you have to ask yourself is, am I willing to do what God says even when it counters my intuitions, even when it counters my feelings, and even when it counters what the culture says around me? The second question is this, does the Bible say that a husband is the authority over a wife? Is that what the Bible says? If yes, what is the wife to do with this information? Now, I think very clearly and in multiple instances, the Bible does. 1 Corinthians 11 says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Ephesians 5, as we read earlier, says, Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. There are a handful of other verses that 
go with this, including instructions that we can sort of see on our own. I'm not going to go into every sort of proof text of this truth, but am I willing to do what God says, even if it counters my nature? Does the Bible says that the husband is the head of the wife and that the wife should submit to the husband, and what do I do with that? The third thing we have to ask ourselves, am I willing to obey this command, and how do I do that? While this text is for a specific audience, I am certain that there are principles in our message today, uh, truths for all of us today. To help you, I want to give you a few things to think about. I want to give everyone a few things to think about. We have to ask ourselves, ladies, you have to ask yourselves, am I willing to obey this command? We all have to ask ourselves that, but it's specifically for our message today. But some things to think about. Am I a man worthy of the authority of biblical headship. As we are talking about these different requests that we are making from our wives, am I worthy? Now the Bible says that she should submit even if I'm not worthy, but am I worthy? Am I going to make it easy on her? As a woman, am I looking for men to marry who, is, who are worthy of my submission? As a parent, am I raising boys and girls to be men and women who honor God in this way? Do I demonstrate biblical submission and headship in my own house to my own children? As a person who studies God through the Bible, do I believe and accept what God says is true? Even if it doesn't apply to you right now, do I believe and accept what God says is true? Even when it counters the very prevailing message of the culture. There's a lot to unpack here, um, and I've already given you a lot, and that wasn't the introduction, but that was a setup for today. There's a lot to unpack here, and, and this has been a long setup, I know, but uh, it must be noted as we move on, and as you think about this subject forever, biblical servanthood, biblical submission is not blind servitude. Uh, it's not, men, it's not to be taken for granted. It's not to be expected just because you were born with an XY chromosome. As a Christian, as a Christian man, it is to be earned. As a Christian wife, it is to be done without being earned. That's it. That's the way it is. It's not to be expected by the man but it must be accomplished by the wife. Biblical submission is not blind servitude. Biblical submission is not somehow another thing we must see before we go on, and I promise we're going to roll through this in the next hour and a half. <laughs> Biblical submission is not implying that the female is less than a male. You have to know this in every, in every respect of the gospel of Jesus Christ every respect, there is no distinction any longer between humans. Yeah. There are Christians and there are non-Christians. Now, there is distinction in the gender, and so we have to follow roles as, as assigned and ascribed by God through the Bible. But as far as it, it pertains to salvation, as far as it pertains to worth, as far as it pertains to ability to understand and know God and follow God, there is no distinction between a male and a female. 
being, a, being submissive to God does not make you less than a man, just like being submissive in a, another role in your life makes you less of a human than that person. No one goes to their boss and thinks, I'm less of a human to my boss because I submit to their leadership. They, their boss may think that, but that's not what they think. They understand that their value is not in their position, right? Their value is not in their position in their marriage, but it's in their position in Christ. So uh, let's get on to the sermon today. Man, I used to hate when my pastor did that when I was growing up. So that was, this is a part of the sermon. I was, yeah, the fine tradition. Uh, this is, that was part of the sermon. Uh, so let's move on, seriously. Okay, I've got two ideas that I want you to hold on to today. And I, I can promise you this, uh, friends, ladies specifically. Um, I did not have any uh, input on my father and his sermon on women on this, so you don't have to worry about that. I put, I put, not that I don't handle every sermon really well, but there are sermons that require extra intricacy in the way I say things because sometimes I don't. Uh, uh, say things as politely and smoothly and what I don't know if you've noticed that probably not it's probably sort of under the radar for you so I've taken extra care to show love and grace to everybody in this room today and I hope that you recognize that today but the first thing you need to see is that a godly wife submits to her husband for the sake of his soul a godly wife submits to her husband for the sake of his soul. Likewise, wives, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Just like our previous passages, Peter is trying to lead Christians not to be lawless, but to be civil. In the ancient government, a wife would have been considered a possession. And while the Christian faith called for no distinction amongst people, uh, that is not the time they were living in. So Peter, again, is giving them a message for the time that they were living in. Uh, But it's not just a message for the time that they were living in. (coughs) Peter is exclaiming to wives to submit to their husband. And part of this is for societal order. Remember, Peter is teaching that nothing outside of the gospel should be offensive. No personal behavior or attitude should come between someone else uh, receiving Christ and someone else rejecting Christ. The gospel is offensive enough. His desire is for societal order, and that's sort of proven by the fact that he says likewise or in the same way, uh, which refers back to, as I mentioned in the introduction, all of those patterns of being subject to authority, even unjust, ungodly authority. There would have been wives whose husbands didn't believe and vice versa. But the message was more important. The reason that six verses were used for wives is because if a wife, if a husband believed, the wife would have been expected to believe. Okay? She wouldn't have had a choice in the matter. But if a wife believed, it brought shame on her husband if he did not believe. So if a wife changed religion, it would have never happened in that day. It would have brought immense shame. It would have unlikely, it would have been unlikely to happen, not never. But if a wife changed religions, it would have brought shame on her husband. If a husband changed religions, his wife would have been expected to believe. Uh, This is why with confidence, not just because of the gospel message, but with confidence, you see with the Philippian jailer, uh, 
repent, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And what's the last part of that? And your house, and your house. Because it would have been expected that if the man believed, number one, he would have led in a way that would have been compelling to his family. But number two, his family would have just been expected to follow. So um, there would have been husbands who didn't believe, uh, and it probably would have been a little more uncommon, but there would have been husbands who didn't believe in wives who believed. Remember, uh, the gospel came, although it was... It was being preached throughout time. The gospel and Jesus came in the middle of people's lives, right? People would have been saved in the middle of their lives. They would have been already married. They would have already had kids. They would have been grandparents maybe, you know, however it may have been. So the message was important for people in all respects of life. So if the husband became a Christian, then his family became a Christian. If the wife became a Christian, it didn't always happen that way. So she needed to know what to do. Peter gives a message then for all wives, but more specifically the wives of unbelieving husbands. He says, wives, submit to your own husband. Her own husband, this is an interesting thought that prevails in uh, all similar passage. A wife has ultimate submission to Christ, to her husband, and to the church. Her submission should not be to another husband or another man. In fact, now this is my strong opinion from my understanding of scripture, um, and this is my opinion, okay? So I need to make it clear, but I feel like it's one that I've developed from a clear understanding of scripture. Uh, This calling to submit to your own husband is one reason my wife has chosen not to work outside of our house. Um, And she made that decision, and we made that decision. It was not just to raise our children and to keep our house, but it was because... uh, My wife is my wife, and I am her husband. And she is not called to submit to another man, but to the covenant that we made together. So we take that as a boss or really anyone else. She is to submit to her own husband. Again, uh, that is an opinion of mine based on what I've seen from Scripture. She is to submit to her own husband. That is not an opinion. Um, Why does she do this? Peter lets us know. She does this for the same reasons mentioned before, for the Lord's sake. She does this so that her unbelieving husband might see the change in her and her willingness to serve the Lord, and he might be saved. What a great demonstration of the power of God through women. Just like in the government, just like with bad bosses, just like with Jesus just like as Jesus did for us. There is redeeming, salvific power in people who are willingness to subvert their very nature, to go against their very nature, and follow the commands of the Lord. Your willingness to submit and obey your husband under all circumstances has a redeeming quality just as your willingness to obey a bad president, a bad governor, a bad boss, or any other person like that that you are in in submission to. There is redeeming salvific power in your willingness to go against your nature and obey the Lord. Peter says that they may be one without a word. Ladies, can I tell you a secret to a happy marriage? It isn't, as we are told, happy wife, happy life. I, I just scoff at that idea. 
I want her to be happy. I want my wife to be happy. But that is not the secret to a good marriage. It isn't to trick or deceive your gullible husband like some 90s sitcom. Peter says that the heart of a husband is one without a word because of the way his wife lives and that it's more beautiful than anything that she can say. What a relief it is, I think, to know that you can win your husband without tricking him. You can win your husband without demeaning him, without shaming him, without scolding him. Many of you men are much better husbands than I am, so I know from experience. Do you know that when my wife gets the most out of me, it isn't when she scolds me? It isn't when she makes me feel bad or she gives me the silent treatment, when she embarrasses me, uh, which she very rarely does because I'm the jerk in this relationship. The, the, the time the wife gets the, my wife gets the most out of me is when she leads by example in service in our family, regardless of what I'm doing. Because I'm a man that I think I'm a man of honor. I'm the type of person, and I'm, I'm not perfect, that's not, I'm just making a point here. I'm the type of person that if I see somebody working and I know that I can help, I don't sit and watch them, I go and do it. When my wife leads by example in my family, it causes me to be motivated to do better. It's a way that I can love her, but it's also a way that I'm not embarrassed, and I'm really motivated at times by not being embarrassed. So wives... We get more out of our husbands, not by the things we say to him, but the things that we do. I'm going to get a little too personal here for some of you, but if my wife treats me poorly, it doesn't work on me because I'm stubborn. If she ridicules me, if she whatever, if she says, uh, well, I guess you're just not going to do any of this. Well, I guess you're probably right on that. I'm, not, I'm just not going to do any of this. So if my wife ridicules me, I'm stubborn, so it doesn't work. If my wife entices me with sex, it doesn't always work because I'm stubborn. Sometimes I can just say, well, forget that. I mean, I, I don't need that. I can just go on for a little while, you know, for a little while or whatever without it. I, I told you I was going to get personal. I'm stubborn, right? But when my wife serves our family, when my wife respects me, when my wife obeys the Lord in this way, I feel like a man. I feel respected. And I promise you... I would crawl over broken glass and jump in a vat of hand sanitizer for her if she did that for me. I would. I would. When she demeans me, which very happens, but very rarely. When she belittles me, when she makes me feel bad, badly for uh, my laziness or whatever it is, it doesn't motivate me. It does, but begrudgingly sometimes. But I would do anything for her. I would do anything for her when she leads by example. And honestly, we're talking about wives right now, but the same is true of a husband. A man will be won, the Bible says, by the conduct of his wife. Not the words of his wife. Not the scolding. Not the exhortation with her mouth, but the conduct of his wife. Peter goes on to say that what is most attractive for a man from his wife. He says, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, 
Do not let your adorning be external, <coughs> the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I want to say to you that Peter is not telling ladies not to braid their hair, not to wear jewelry, or not to wear clothes. As a matter of fact, the grammatic structure of that, if he was saying that, he would have to be saying, do not wear clothes at all because of the grammatic structure. And I don't think you would think that that's what he's suggesting. Uh, He is not saying, don't braid your hair, don't look nice, don't uh, wear nice clothes or clothes that attract your husband. He is saying that ultimately... What grabs your husband's attention and what proves to the world that you are a gospel light is not what you wear or what you put on physically, but it is what you put on in your spirit. He is saying that men will not ultimately be won by what they see with their eyes, but what they feel in their heart. Beauty is fading. Physical beauty is fading. And ladies, I want to tell you, you probably feel this way in general, but even for your husband, there will always be a woman that is more physically attractive than you. It's something that I've learned in the gym. I'm pretty strong, but every gym I go to, there's always multiple people that are stronger, that are more fit, that are more athletic than I am. If you want to keep your husband, not in a divorce sense, but keep him in his heart. If you want him to look at you in the same way as he did on your wedding day. If you want him to honor you as you honor him, then our adorning must be adorning of the heart. And a little makeup here and there doesn't hurt either. Friends, I want you to know, I'm sorry, I told you I worked hard and this is still what you're getting. (laughs) It's not a negative for a lady to be known as gentle and quiet. You might have been okay with respectful, like, oh, of course, I'm a respectful lady. You might have been okay with um, pure conduct. But it's not a problem for a lady to be known as gentle and quiet. As a matter of fact, these same two words are what is used about Jesus in the way he went to the cross. And it's what's used about Jesus in the way in how it was prophesied about him. A gentle and quiet spirit is a first-hand character trait of her Savior. So how does she put on her inward beauty, she adorns herself with respectful and pure conduct. She adorns herself with a gentle and quiet spirit. And Peter says, this is precious in God's sight. And when your believing husband sees it, he is motivated to do more. When an unbelieving husband sees it, he might be saved. Now, this is ringing true in my life right now more than ever. Um, I, and it may not look at it if you look at our two body types, but I've been working out for a long time. As a matter of fact, Tony and I have been working out several days a week for three years. Before that, I was working out since high school. And my wife, 
who for some reason hit the lottery jackpot on genetics has barely worked out her entire life. And so you probably would look at us and say, she's the one that works out and I'm not the one. But lately, she has been exercising. Okay, and for several reasons. One, I'm too embarrassed to say, so I won't tell you out loud. No, I'll say it. My wife is already prettier than me. If she starts exercising, I have to exercise a lot harder because I can't let her be even more prettier than me. But she is, she is exercising. I'm telling you, there's been a lot of thoughts go through my head. This is not a, this is not a normal sermon that you're going to get from me, but I hope it's beneficial for you. Um, she, is, uh, <laughs> she is exercising, and her exercise, the way her, she is living in her life, has motivated me to now do some really stupid things exercising and try a lot harder for several reasons. One that I gave you uh, so plainly a second ago, but mainly because I love the passion that she is conveying and she's leading by example. She leads me by example more, more prevalently than I probably ever give her credit for. It's cute to think that you can let your husband think he's winning and you're getting what you want. But it's even more just beautiful when you just do what the Lord says regardless. And then you get what you want the right way. It's not cool to deceive. It's not cool to take advantage of, to use yourself as a tool. It is cool to love God in such a way that you submit to Christ first, which is beautiful in his sight. You live in a respectable, you live in a gracious, you live in a quiet, you live in a gentle, you live in a pure way that honors him first, that honors your husband and makes your husband willing to do anything for you. A godly wife submits to her own husband for the sake of his soul. A godly wife submits to her own husband for the sake of her soul. Look at verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, I'm only going to spend a few minutes on this because I want to give you some very practical thoughts. Peter says, just as Sarah submitted to Abraham. This is the kind of submission that he is implying that he is directly stating a, a wife should do for her husband. Sarah called Abraham Lord. That's how Sarah submitted to Abraham. Now, Peter is not suggesting that a woman should submit to her husband in a uh, slave and master sort of sense, but as in that he is her God-placed authority. That there is a hierarchical structure that we are to follow. What did Sarah do? She left her homeland for a foreign country to follow her husband. The Bible gives us countless examples of the way Sarah submitted to Abraham. Some good, great, and some not so great. Sarah called Abraham Lord, and she followed him. As a matter of fact, one of the only times we see Sarah out of submission to Abraham, it turned out very poorly for them. 
Sarah, in her anger, in her disappointment in not being able to have a child, she says, just go sleep with my best friend, handmaiden lady over here. Go have a baby with her. How did that turn out if you know your Old Testament history very well? Not well. Peter says two things you must hear that are important for your own soul, ladies. Your godly submission to your husband is proof, is proof that you are a child of God. It is proof that you're a child of God. He says it's proof that you're a child of Sarah, which means you're a child of the promise. Because it's proof that the gospel is taking effect in you. Do you know why? Because no one counters the culture in that way without a gospel effect in their lives. No one willingly counters the culture in that way without a gospel effect in their lives. No one willingly counters the culture in that way without Jesus Christ coming into their lives and changing their perspective. It is so anti the world to submit to your husband in a godly way, ladies, but it is so like Christ. And it is proof that you are a child of the promise because it must take the regenerative work of Christ Jesus and our submission to him in order to do those things. He says also that your godly submission will lead to a life of fearless peace. Look at the last verse. Look at verse 6. And Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Friends, I know for everybody in here, to say that you must submit to yourself to authority is a thing that can be anxiety and fear-inducing. But did you know that the Bible says the opposite effect happens when we submit to the authorities in place over us? The Bible says, as a matter of fact, instead of fear and anxiety, the Bible says when we submit to the authorities over us, we lack fear. We are without fear of anything that is frightening. I want to close today with some practical ways that wives can humbly and willingly submit to her husband that a wife can humbly and willingly submit to her husband how can a godly wife submit number one she respects him which submit and respect go hand in hand ladies more than love more than affection most men won't respect they want you to know they want to know that they are not looked down upon that they are equals just as you are that Their word is heard. Do you value your husband's opinion, ladies? Do you admire his wisdom and character? Do you adore his commitment to you? Or do you criticize? Do you demean? Or do you disregard what he says or does? She respects him. That is one way that we honor the Lord in submitting to the biblical headship of authority. I have three other practical tips, but they all sort of revolve around respect, so there might be some overlap. She respects him. She believes in him. Ladies, a huge area of respect for your husband is to know that you believe in him. 
If you critique everything he does or demeans, demean his attempts at the house or elsewhere, how long do you think he will continue to try? If he goes into something knowing that you expect him to fail, how long will he attempt brave and new things for you? Respectfully, many women complain about their, what their husbands do or what they don't do, and yet during the week they neuter them with their words. So that he's an obedient, good boy. If you want your man to do things, let him learn his way. Let him learn your way without sharp criticism. Let him try new things and then call the plumber. Believe in him so that he will believe in himself. Ladies, this is not directly a Christian concept, but this is from uh, a psychologist, Jordan Peterson, and I think you should all listen to him because he's brilliant and good, and you can weed out the non-Christian stuff. He says what we want out of our men is not docile men of mere servitude. We want dangerous men, and I believe this. What we want to develop out of our sons, what we want to be as a husband is dangerous men. Because what we are proving when we are dangerous men is that we are, and, and when we are under control of God, is that dangerous men are, let me say this a different way. I feel like Joe Biden right now. Let me say this a different way. We want, we want dangerous men who are self-controlled, who are controlled, and I'm going to say this, by the Spirit of God. We don't want men who, uh, who don't know how to take care of themselves, don't know how to take care of their families, or anything like that. We want dangerous men who are self-controlled. Do you believe in your husband? Do you let your husband, do you let your sons even do dangerous things in a controlled environment? Do you let them make their own mistakes? Or do you shut them down before they are even able to do so? She believes in her husband. She respects her husband. She protects him. How do you talk about your husband publicly? How many people know the shortcomings of your husband? It isn't always this way, but I expect my marriage to be between me and my wife. Now, she has outlets and stuff like that, but I expect for the most part my marriage to be between me and my wife. Now, this does not include hiding abuse or harm or sinful behavior that needs to be corrected. But your relationship, for the most part, should be closed to a select group of people who are Christians that are concerned with building up you and your marriage. Wives, do you protect your husband with your words? Or does the entire world around you know of your displeasure with him? Do your friends know of all the things that you think are wrong? There's a major problem with not protecting your relationship, and it's this. You are willing to forgive wrongdoing of your husband and your wife, especially when you see them going about it the right way now and for a long time. But the friends that you tell and the family members that you tell don't have the same vantage point and don't have the same perspective. And they will not be willing to as quickly or maybe ever forgive. 
So as long as you can withhold in a godly way and not in a dangerous way, as long as you can withhold and protect your husband, that's what you ought to do. Because I can promise you this thing, and I'll give you an example. If you say things about me to my wife and to me that are demeaning, I will forgive you, especially if that's what you seek. You're going to have to talk to my wife about that, though. Because I think she'll forgive you, but it'll change the way that she feels about you. Because as a couple, that's what you want. You want a husband who fearlessly defends his wife. You want a, a wife who fearlessly and sometimes recklessly defends their husband. Ladies, are you protecting your husband? Are you, making it, are you making it to where when he makes mistakes, he can recover from those? Or are you making it to where when he makes mistakes, it's almost impossible for him to recover because the world knows what's going on with him? So in the same manner as we learned in the earlier passage, we're to take our cares first and prominently to the Lord. And then, if necessary, to others. But it should be a group of people that we trust and we know are trying to help and would only help build our relationship. Do you protect your relationship with your husband? She respects him. She believes in him. She protects him. She praises him. When you respect your husband, you notice him. And you notice what he does. You regard him as special. This does not mean babying him, but showing appreciation. You're not his mom. You're not his second mom or his next mom. But you do regard him as special without babying him. You prefer him over others and other things. You esteem him. Do you value your husband's opinion? Do you admire his wisdom and character? Tell him. Tell him. It's not a sign of weakness to praise your husband, even if you don't feel like it. And especially if you don't feel like it, it's a major sign of strength. Do you praise him for his commitment to you? Now you might say that seems like babying him. Do you praise him for his commitment to you? The nature of a man is to plant his seed and run, and I'm just being honest. The fallen nature of a man is to plant his seed and run. It is not to commit. It is not to stay at home. <clears throat> so the fact that he is committed, the fact that he has chosen you and he has stayed with you and he is making it work is something worthy of admiration and praise. If you take away the need for sexual intimacy, I would say that most men don't need very many things or very many people. Sometimes I, you know, they have those things on Facebook all the time. It's like the world's quietest room. Now, this is not just a characteristic to men, but it's like the world's quietest room. You can only stay a minute in there. And I'm like, I could live my life in there. The man's urge is to be wild and free, to run, to do what he wants to do, 
to be not bound down by anything. That, those are his natural urges that are also likely a result of the fall. Because creation says it was for the husband to desire his wife and the wife to desire his husband and they to walk with God. Your husband's commitment to you should be worthy of praise. Remember, we're only talking to wives right now, so these things can be said about a husband to his wife also. Do you praise your husband both publicly and privately? Friends, the prescription for joy in marriage is difficult to follow, but it's easy to understand. It's that both the husband and the wife, regardless of what, regardless of the attitudes and the actions of others, are living for the Lord first and primarily, and they live with their wife or husband as unto the Lord, as they're doing it for the Lord. It's easy to understand, it's difficult to follow. Because the Lord asks us to do so ask us so to do so many things that are contrary to our very nature. So it takes faith. It takes trust, not only in Christ, but in our spouse. And it takes a commitment, and this is vastly important in about everything that you do in life. It takes a commitment to doing the hard things, even though they are hard. To doing the unexpected things, even when they are difficult. Ladies, that he may be won by her conduct. That he may be won by her conduct. Pray with me today. Lord, we love you. We know that you are so good. We know that your word is true. So we only have one thing to do, and that's obey your word and follow it, or hear your word and follow it. Help us to trust you. Help us to love you. Help us to follow you more every day, to live for you in a manner more closely than we did yesterday, more closely than we're doing today. We love you so much. We praise you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray and ask these things. Amen.